0: Knowing that the peace that we seek and long for and find in this practice is a peace that every human being longs for. And we know that there are so many parts of the world where that peace is very far away in this moment. So I wanted to start our evening with a song of peace that we can sing together if you like or just breathe it in and out and make it part of your practice either way if you're singing or not singing is practice so here's how it goes and it's in the chat if any of you feel the need for the words
1: peace in my heart peace in my heart Peace in my words, peace in my land, peace in my heart, peace in my hands, peace in my
0: a little challenging please know that when we sing and we sing words that we believe and that matter to us that there's a vibration in the singing that brings that meaning deeper and deeper into ourselves and into our bones so it's a very powerful practice to add voice and vibration to words and chants that we believe in so Join me if you like, peace in my heart.
1: Peace in my heart. Peace in my hands. Peace in my words. Peace in my land. How about love in my heart? Love in my heart. Love in my hands
0: Metta, like loving kindness wishes. We start with ourselves and then we realize that it's a collective experience. It's a human connecting experience. We all
1: long for this. So we sing Peace in our hearts, peace in our hearts.
0: The words, just let the vibrations fill you.
1: Ooh, 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 ooh. And before
0: we sing it one last time. You might want to just think about a place or a person that you would like to send this song to, these intentions, these wishes. I have a lot of faith in the power of sending prayers, sending vibration, sending song, knowing now that the trees themselves communicate from tree to tree through their leaves, and through their roots. And if trees can communicate across boundaries, I just know that we can too. So choose some place you want to send this song right now.
1: Peace.
0: Well, welcome again dear friends. Welcome to ones I haven't greeted yet. I think Kimberly came on and Kate came on and Tanya. I'm so glad to be together tonight. Um So I have been thinking a lot recently about compassion. And I've been having experiences in the last couple of years that have really brought me face to face with some of the complexities of compassion. So I thought I would share a little bit about that tonight. I think most of you know that compassion is a very, very important quality in in the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist way of life. And there are actually four important qualities that are called the Brahma viharas, which actually uh, translates as noble qualities of the heart, or the divine abodes of, that's it, divine abodes, ah, oh, places we can dwell that are so joyful. And the four, if you're not familiar with this, are loving-kindness, which is what we practiced just now. Well-wishing others, extending loving-kindness. Karuna, compassion. Uh, Mudita, which is sympathetic joy. Joy, but particularly joy in other people's voice. Joy is rather, kind of the opposite of envy and jealousy. The celebration of joy as it passes through lives and then equanimity balance kind of having a stability to how we ride the waves of the inevitable ups and downs of life so compassion is one of those and the um the word is karuna in pali and actually the full expression of the second of, of these divine abodes is anukampa karuna and anukampa means a tenderness of heart or a trembling in the heart. Some call it a quivering in the heart. And I really love that because isn't that just how it feels when we watch something that is, is, um, just makes us feel something in our hearts? We quiver. My hands just want to go like that, you know? And um, whether it's a crying child or watching people running toward a border trying to escape bombs... Or uh, you know a hurt animal, you know it's just the whole spectrum. So that's the trembling, but there's more. It's a double brahmavihara because the word karuna actually has to do with turning outward. It's it's responding with action. And I think of all these Brahma-viharas, compassion most of all is one where it just doesn't feel in our bodies enough to just tremble and feel whatever we feel. We want to do something, don't we? We want to do something about this situation that makes our heart quiver. So that's why I think compassion can get very complicated because then the next layer is, well, what action? What is skillful? What is appropriate, right? Some of you who come to my talks know that I've been talking a lot lately about this thing of an appropriate response. And it comes from a very famous little little Buddhist story where a young nun asks the you know wise elder, abbess, um, and says, what is the goal of a lifetime of practice? Why are we doing this, right? And it's a big question. And the answer that comes back is, The goal is an appropriate response. Hmm. So what if our practice is all about developing our capacity to respond more appropriately, more accurately, more skillfully? It's like bringing just the right medicine for the ailment that we're being confronted with. Yeah, so. So the other amazing thing I love about these Brahma Viharas, and I'm going to just talk about compassion on this one, is the idea that these qualities have um, resonant other qualities that one uh, and that are called the near and far enemy. <laughs> so the near enemy is something that looks like the quality, kind of sounds like it, talks like a duck, walks like a duck, but it actually isn't. It's off the mark and can even can even do harm. So compassion, the near enemy of compassion, is usually described as pity. It's a kind of a top-down, looking down at you, poor suffering creature. What's happening to you would, of course, never happen to me. But I, in all my, all my kind of health and well-being, am going to help you. There's, like, there's a deficit and we're here to fill it. And that may sound like at first blush, like, well, no, I don't do that. But I'm going to tell you some stories that I've learned in my life in the last couple of years that I think reveal kind of what that does look like. And there are other near enemies that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. The far enemy is a little more obvious. What's the opposite of compassion? Indifference. You know, don't care. Don't have to. You know, Uh, I love I was raised with the Bible and I love the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a a classic teaching story in the in that Judeo-Christian tradition where there's a a wounded man lying by the side of the road. He was beaten by robbers and he's he's a he's a he's a. i can't remember it doesn't matter he's some tribe anyway and two very high kind of brahmin if this was india they would be dra- brahmin types walk by and look at this poor dirty you know bloody creature and just just walk on by and the third person who walks by stops and helps and he was from samaria samaria is that the, the word samaria where which was kind of considered like an untouchable if if again if we were in india or nepal they would be an untouchable and they're the one that goes with compassion. So, indifference is the walking by. Okay, And then there's another kind of compassion that uh, come, was coined by Trungpa Rinpa, Rinpoche. Let me just pull this out. So, he says, um, Trungpa Rinpoche coined the term idiot compassion, which is a nice example of, of a certain kind of wise speech that Buddhists are very good at, which is very pithy. And he says, um, idiot compassion takes place when derms." When during times of trying to display to compassion to others, we end up letting them walk all over us. Mm-hmm. I bet we could all think of an example like that. Another woman uh, says it this way when our main concern is to avoid rocking the boat, even though the boat needs rocking, and which leads your, to your compassion being more harmful than your honesty would have been, it's the opposite of, I'm sorry, its opposite is wise compassion which means caring about a person, but also giving her a loving truth bomb when needed, right? <laughs> and Pema Chodron says, idiot compassion is just, it's called enabling. So this is, you know, the, the mother of the, the uh, teenage uh, drug user or the young adult drug user who keeps saying, oh, he's just had such a hard life, or oh, if his wife hadn't left him, you know, oh, if he hadn't lost that job, you know, etc. And as parents, we all know how heart-wrenching it, it could be to have a child in trouble. And yet, what is skillful, wise compassion, right? It's a deep discernment. It is not obvious all the time. So there are three areas of my life that I think of particularly that have taught me about some other near enemies that I wanna share with you. Um, One is parenting, (laughs) the ultimate teacher. But believe me, you can get all kinds of education in this life without being a parent, I assure you. The, and the second two are a little more individual, which is my, my experience as a doula uh, at working with birth and with early childhood. And then so at the threshold of coming into this life. And then the other is being at the other end of the threshold and being accompanying people to their death, which I don't do professionally. But I I have done it with my both my parents and my sister who died of cancer a couple of years ago. So this is where I learned about some new near-enemies which I want to share with you. First, I'm going to start with parenting. So when my my son, who's now 30, was about four or five, he went out and tried out skateboarding for the first time. And he took a few tumbles and really scraped himself up. And he came home sobbing with red knees and red elbows and was just sobbing. He hurt real bad. He took a bad fall. Okay, I'm a, I'm a young mom, i mean, not young, I'm a new, I was not young, I was, I was newish. And I did what any parent would naturally do, which is I wanna make the hurting stop. I will do anything to make that hurting stop. So I tried, you know, putting spit on it. I tried methylate. I tried, um, you know, arnica and this and that. And he just kept crying. And I was just doing everything I could. He's lying in the bed and I'm, you know, washing and doing all these things. And he looks up at me with these huge tearful eyes and he says, Mom, why don't you do something? like I am and it's not helping is it I mean it's not doing anything and it was this cr- amazing moment in parenthood where I realized he thinks I'm God and he thinks that any thing that goes wrong in his life I should be able to fix and the sad and painful truth is this is dukkha this is the ordinary suffering if you will pain discomfort of being in a body and of course we all know the Buddha taught that this is inevitable that the first noble truth is discomfort, dis- unsatisfactoriness, um, misery, pain are inevitable. Okay, So that's it was quite an awakening for me to realize I did not have the power to do for him what he thought I could do and should do. And I got a song out of it, so I'm going to sing that song to you now. It's called Sometimes It's Hard to Be Six. Sometimes it's hard to be six. There's things even mommies can't fix. That scrape on your knee, it just stings for so long. The backpack you left on the bus, well, it's gone. And some days the sour overpowers the sweet in the mix. And there's things even mommies can't fix. And it's hard to be six. Sometimes it's hard to be six. There's things even mommies can't fix. The goldfish all died and we still don't know why. That baby bird fell before it learned to fly. And your best friend is moving away. Well of all dirty tricks. There's things even mommies can't fix And it's hard to be six Sometimes it's hard to be six There's things even mommies can't fix Like troubles between the grown-ups at home They try to act normal but you know something's wrong And you wonder what's broken, who broke it, and can it be fixed? Is this house made of straw or of bricks? Means a lot when you're six. And sometimes it's hard
1: to be mom and to see all the things that go wrong and all of her power and love can't prevent the random misfortunes the broken
0: the bent and even a mom sometimes wonders if god's playing tricks because what
1: good is a mom who can't fix the whole world when you're sick
0: and sometimes it's hard to be us, just stumbling around in the dust. Not much to hang on to and nowhere to go that looks any better as far as we know. And it's hard to
1: just keep getting up every time that we fall. And we all need a lap to crawl into when we hit the wall. Maybe what can't be fixed can be cradled by the mother of all.
0: Ah, just breathe for a few moments. The mother of all in our practice here is um, also known as Prajma Paramita, the mother of all Buddhas. And it's that primal source that everything comes from and returns to. And we also have these beautiful images of the Bodhisattva, Kuan Yin, Tara, the goddess of compassion, the Bodhisattva of compassion. And the next two stories I'm gonna tell you about really offer more understanding of what can't be fixed can be cradled and the power of just holding presence and awareness in the midst of someone's suffering. Oh, so I became a doula about three years ago um, at the ripe old age of 68, I think it was. And it happened right after my sister's death. And it's just so profound to me that being with her for a month and um, you know helping her depart left me in a place where somehow all I wanted to be was in a place of compassion and loving presence at a threshold. But it turned out what called me was the threshold of birth, not the threshold of death. So um, I I got trained and I began to practice um, my mission, or my my focus was on low-income women who couldn't otherwise afford a doula. And I ended up volunteering in the local county hospital, which was an amazing and wonderful experience. But COVID shut it down pretty quickly, shut down the the doula program. They had a volunteer doula program. But I was blessed um, with two single moms um, that were not in a hospital setting, but came through friends and re- referrals. And both of them really needed a doula. They really needed, <laughs> they needed someone like me. Um, and, The first one, there was actually three, and the first one was when I was volunteering with a project called the Homeless Prenatal Project, which helped women with fragile housing or unhoused women, first of all, get them into housing, and then um, get them great prenatal care, great hospital services, and and doulas. So my first client was a woman who had just moved into her new apartment with her eight-year-old daughter, her disabled father, and was very pregnant. And I was not her birth doula. I was actually her postpartum doula. But I did meet with her several times before the baby came. Now, I was a brand new doula. This was my very first gig as a doula. And you know how it is? I don't know if any of you have ever been trained to do something. I think uh, teaching is a really good analogy. Be, you know, you get all this training, and when you're new, Oh my goodness, you have zero experience and a head full of how it's supposed to be. And that is a dangerous combination. So I go into this doula relationship just like bright eyed and bushy tail, like, I am a new doula, and I know what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to do it, right? And so I was telling her all these things that I could do for her. I can cook for you. I can clean for you. I can um, pick your daughter up at school. And and you must have a, when you come home from the hospital, you must have a bowl of snacks by the bed and a lot of water because you're going to be nursing, and you need to stay down, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I was just full of being, I was doula-ing. I was doula-ing. I was creating an identity out of this obsessive action, this this obsessive compassion. And she was very nice, but what emerged over two or three weeks postpartum was that she actually didn't really want any of those things. And she would kind of say, well, you know, i kind of like cooking, i kind of like to cook myself, you know, or, well, uh, you know, I, I like to pick my daughter up, you know, I, I like to see her teach her this and that. So on it went, you know, and I was getting really frustrated and, uh, and feeling kind of like, uh, maybe I'm not a good doula because this doesn't seem to be working. So I called up my, my uh, supervisor or whatever she called her, volunteer coordinator, and I told her this story of how she just doesn't seem to want the things that I was trained to do and I'm very puzzled and this woman said look you know you have to if she was a Buddha she would have said you have to look deeper you have to develop more wise view and wise understanding here's someone who's been on her own for since she was 15 she lived in group homes until she was 18 and then she sort of stumbled along in different halfway houses and you know subsidized housing and whatnot and she has had to take care of herself and be, she's very used to having things, I'm sure, very used to having the system let her down, to promise services that don't get delivered or don't get delivered in a timely way, people who say they're going to help her and then actually don't, relatives who say they will, etc. She said, look, you know, self-sufficiency is an identity for women of this nature. And so you're messing with her self-sufficiency by wanting her to depend on you in some way and receive help from you. So, and she wasn't saying like you're doing anything wrong. She's just explaining to me the dynamic. And I am like, oh my goodness, the things I didn't know. So, you know, that my two words for this kind of near enemy of compassion are effortful compassion and self-centered compassion. And I know self-centered compassion sounds contradictory, but when you think of, when I think about how, what I was doing, I was... So concerned with my success as a doula and my establishing my identity, proving myself, because I was insecure, I was new. And so that's that was not the compassion she needed. I was not being skillful. It was not an appropriate response because I didn't know enough, right? I didn't have that wise view. So I came back and we sat together and we liked each other. We had a nice relationship, and and she was nursing and we were chatting. And oh, and she talked a blue streak. This woman talked my ear off, right? All, every time I went. So I said, you know, I've noticed that you don't seem to really um, uh, be be needing the things that I've been offering you and I've been I'm kinda new to this I was very transparent I said and I'm kinda puzzled like I'm not quite sure how I'm helping you or even if I'm helping you and so I just wanted to check because you did ask for a doula and to just check on what what is it that you would like or that you're getting out of my being here with you once a week and she basically said look you know I just need someone to talk to I just need someone to talk to and I thought about, I'd met the boyfriend, father several times, and I understood there was not a lot there for her. Her father's disabled and out on the street every day selling from a little market stall, and, you know, she, her daughter needs her. She doesn't have anybody to talk to, basically. And it was this amazing insight into the value of listening, the value of presence and how it was actually enough, right? I was so busy selfing, as we say in in the practice, you know, trying to create a solid identity that I couldn't tune into the fluidity of what's an appropriate response, response in this moment. So that was what that beautiful woman taught me and I'm so grateful for her. And a much shorter story. My my other young young single mom, another young young single mom, also had very few resources. Her mother had died. She had no auntie, no grandma, no sisters. Um, her friends were from her pre-pregnancy days. She was a young wild woman, a very wild woman before she got pregnant, and something happened, and she turned on a dime. But all her former friends were still partying on, so she too was very isolated and had a, no income and um, was on you know all kinds of social services so I had a lot and we got along great and the postpartum went much better because I'd been broken in by my first woman it went much better and she wanted things she did I mean she was happy to have me massage her and do this and that and the other but there was one time there, there were still things I offered that she didn't take where I would think what if it were me I would say yes so fast you know So one day, she had to leave her house precipitously. It was her mother's house who had died. And she had to leave it precipitously because she found out it was full of lead dust due to some very bad work work that went on. And she got out in a day, right, with her daughter and the clothes on her back, basically, and went to an extended stay hotel. And she had to do a lot of errands to set things up. And she had to do errands so that the work people who were going to come in and take care of the house could do it. So she's driving around doing errands. And I'm saying, or I'm on the phone. I'm saying, hey, why don't you? And the baby's crying in the seat next to her. I'm saying, why don't you let me come over and take the baby? You know, you're staying in a hotel with a pool. We can play in the yard. We, you know, and then you're free to just go to the hardware, do what you want to do. So, no, no, it's okay. So um, another. So I had a similar conversation a few days later. Oh, so what we? I said, oh, I said, okay. Well, why don't I come drive around with you and hang out in the car with you? You know. And she said, well, we're going back to the hotel. We met at the hotel. We went swimming. We had a wonderful time. But a couple of days later, I asked her again the same question. I just noticed that you didn't want me to take take Anastasia. And, and I've offered you other things that have to do with helping with her that you haven't wanted. And I'm just curious if you could explain to me because I really want to understand. And she said, again, just the most poignant thing. She said, you know, right? my life is frankly, pardon my, the language, a shit show right now. Everything is bad. The only good thing in my life. I feel like is this little baby It makes me happy to be with her I'd rather have her in the seat next to me because every time I look at her while I'm doing these errands. I just feel better, you know, I Could have just cried. I mean, I just I did get tears in my eyes like how beautiful is that? so just another example of getting more wisdom about what is actually needed and then trying to move into that space. So it's just fascinating to me to think about how wise compassion really brings in a whole lot of other, of the, I guess it's the eightfold path of these, you know how how there's like right livelihood and right action and right this and right that and I like wise better, but it does involve wise view and wise understanding in order to find wise action, yeah? And it also takes some equanimity, I think, that practice of understanding that um, the ups and downs can't, can't always be uh, f- stabilized and fixed, and that what looks like a big drama is, can resolve into something else. And we all know this in our lives, that we have these dramatic moments that always feel like this is forever, but they never are because nothing is forever. So I, I found as a doula and as a parent that I developed slowly some equanimity around staying stable while they were freaking out, as they do, as, as we all do, you know. So let's just take a moment, let's take a moment and just catch our breath here. This is a lot of story. <laughs> and maybe, um, maybe we'll do this. Let's do a little practice together. Um, so if you would either close your eyes or, or look down and connect with your breath again. And perhaps if you care to think of maybe some pain or suffering that is in your life now, or in the recent past, or just any time. A time when you could really use some comfort, some comfort, some compassion. And I'm going to just offer you several phrases that are sometimes known as the compassion phrases. And they're adapted from Kamala Masters and Adrian Ross, two Buddhist, Western Buddhist teachers. So I'll say one and you can just breathe it in, breathe it in and if you wanna whisper it in your mind, just do, do that. May I be free of suffering. May I be safe and well in the midst of all this. May I be at ease with the changing conditions of my life. May I open to this pain with gentleness and compassion. And then turning our minds and hearts toward, once again, toward another person in your life or a situation that would really benefit from compassion or that just makes your heart quiver. Yeah. I care about you. Your suffering matters to me. I see your suffering. It is hard. This is the way it is right now. This is not the way it will always be. So I have one last story to tell you, and it's about my dad dying. He was he was my my first experience of accompanying someone, uh, and I spent two months with him as his primary caregiver, along with my mom. But she was having her own journey, and um, I have I was able to be there and sleep on the couch for two months. And, jump up in the middle of the night when he called out, um, felt just like having a newborn in those moments. It was very tender, it was very beautiful. And my dad was a, a difficult man, a very, a very beautiful, sensitive, um, brilliant, quirky, eccentric, difficult man. His emotions were not very available to us and um, I got to witness what happens when, or at least can happen, as someone transitions toward their, their departure, which is that his words got fewer and fewer and they became full of love. It's like the only words that came to him were words of love. It was remarkable. And I, like a newbie, again, my first experience of this and my siblings, all of us were like, what do we do? How do we do this well? What does he need? How can we, give him, all, we just had so much love we wanted to give him. And there was this very poignant, and hospice was incredible and they coached us when they were wonderful. But there was this incredible moment we all had sitting with him when he started in this very poignant childlike voice almost saying, I, was a, I wasn't a good father. I wasn't a good father. Poor Muffy, our youngest daughter, our youngest who died very young of drugs and alcohol. Poor Muffy, I was so bad to her, and he just was in that awful place of oh, feeling that the harms done that could not be undone. And we were all, understandably, going, "Oh, Dad, you were plenty good enough, Dad. You were, you. We, we love you. You were good, so forth." And I think the hospice people might have been there, or maybe we talked with them later. The social worker about how hard that was, and she explained to us that one of the important parts of of the dying process if you're lucky enough to have a process is the life review where you really go back and review and make peace or, or you know try to make peace with what this all adds up to at the end of the day and she said don't take that away from him he needs to feel those things he needs to say those things he is wrestling with his own soul don't try to make it nice for him wow wow and it reminds me of those last phrases that I love so much. It says, I see your suffering. It is hard. Oh, it is so unsentimental and so real. And I think so much what a person wants to hear, right? So I want to just close with a song and, um, that I wrote after my dad died. Because what I learned was, and what I learned as a doula, what I learned from my son, what I learned from those moms, is that listening and presence is more than enough.
1: More than enough.
0: Sorry, I have to tune a little bit here. So this is a song called Simple, Simple Love.
1: Me go to sleep. Oh simple, simple love. It's all that's left of us when everything has turned to dust. We'll put our trust in. Simple With the music in your heart